So what can we do for people within leadership positions to become aware of the multicultural, the multidiverse range of behaviors when it comes to the different communication styles? Yeah, you put that very, very well, because it is exactly that. It is showing up and playing to the biases of the leadership. And of course, many of those are unconscious and the leadership isn't aware that they have them. So it really all starts in self-awareness and knowing yourself, knowing your biases, knowing your own culture so that you can better understand the differences in other cultures. And then having a very curious mindset where you are looking, constantly looking and trying to understand what are the differences here. Even though I truly believe underneath it all, we are very, very similar in our needs, our wants, our our need to belong, our need to be acknowledged. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is Hate CD. I'm delighted to have you with me for another cracking episode, this time for the wonderful Heather Hansen, author of the book Unmuted, a fantastic book for anyone practicing their craft within organizations who strive to improve their comprehension, their understanding and their better and more effective use of language. As many of you will probably know, my name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a service designer based in Ireland, and I offer service design training, user experience design training, and also my visualization methods for change makers course on my website. And I offer this in-house for businesses too. So if you're an organization looking for training, please get in touch with me. So let me tell you a little bit about Heather. Heather is based in Singapore, where they run the Global Speech Academy, an organization focused on improving the quality of communication across departments and teams. Now we chat in great detail about language bias. Heather comes from the US and we speak about all that jargon that permeates the tech industry, such as ping me or circle back. Where does this come from? And not only what underpins it, but also the effect that this has on a day-to-day basis. It's exclusionary and ultimately it's exclusive. Heather's awesome, so let's jump straight into it. Heather, great to have you in the show. Um, you know, For our listeners, maybe start off, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are from. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. I am originally from California. I was born and raised in a very small town in the very middle of the state. And as soon as I finished university, I got out of there and I moved to Denmark, where I spent four years before moving to Singapore. Uh, My background in education is in international studies, if you haven't guessed, with a focus in language and society. So I've always been very, very interested in how we are communicating using the English language across languages and cultures. And I've just always been very interested in in language. I also have a bachelor's degree in German. I speak Danish fluently since I'm now married to a Dane and lived in Denmark for eight years. And now we're raising two third culture kids here in Singapore, where I have a corporate training firm focusing on communication skills in multinational companies. So an American living in Denmark, now living in Singapore, what does the the benefit of those three different perspectives give you in oh, your wow. career? It's enormous perspective. I think it's been such a gift that I've had that opportunity to yeah. live on three different continents and three radically different cultures. Uh, and and that's what I really love about Singapore is how international it is. So every single mm-hmm. conversation that I'm a part of has people from many different countries, many different languages. You know, we have a dinner party and we invite 12 people and they all have these random backgrounds of all these different, they're all mixes of everywhere. And and we might have like 
18 languages around the table. It's, it's amazing. And that makes life really, really interesting. And it teaches you how to, how to be curious and how to listen and how to observe and, and learn about people and people's behavior in a different way, I think. So what does, um, when you have those, those dinner parties and there's 18 people sitting around the room, um, the common language is English. Is correct? Is, is that, yeah. that that language you, you kind of default? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what what do you notice when you have uh, people who are non-native English speakers when they interpret, um, you know, different dialogues and, and different? Because we were talking mm-hmm. about before, I'm Irish, but I lived in Australia. Mm-hmm. How we deliver, um, you know, our intent tends to uh, come from a place where you, you're natively kind of reared. So me being Irish, when I speak uh, English, it's fluent to me. But if someone is learning English as a second or maybe a third or even a fourth language, sometimes things can get misconstrued. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's funny is that the people who speak English as a second, third, fourth, fifth language usually think it's their fault. Like, oh, my English is so bad. My English isn't good enough. And they'll have this kind of self-consciousness around speaking up at the dinner table in those social situations or in the work situations. But the reality that I have found is that in these multicultural, multilingual communities and contexts, it tends to be us, the, the native speakers, who are a bit more of the problem because we show up and we speak really fast. We have a lot of cultural expressions that we use, a lot of idioms. I mean, there are so many things that you could say right now that I wouldn't even understand. And we're both native English speakers, right? So yeah. it takes a lot of um, conscious communication on our part and choosing our words wisely, slowing down our speaking rate, um, trying to be more culturally neutral in the way we use the language so that we aren't bringing so much of the cultural context that we can't expect our listener to understand. And these are the kinds of miscommunications that we're seeing in the workplace as well that cause a lot of problems. I remember when I moved to Australia um, the second time, and uh, for anyone who's Irish was listening here, you probably might get a chuckle out of this one but we were all out for lunch and I was working in an ad agency and you know we're both native English speakers we both have you know full grasp of the language and someone walked by and they looked a little bit funny and I went hey would you look at your man over there would you and the Australian looked at me and was like sorry like would you look at your man across the road and his response was he's not my man not my man I'd say the same thing. What are you talking about? That's not my husband. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like your man over there. And he's like, but he's he's not my man. Why are you saying your man? (laughs) I don't own him. And I'm like, ah, Janie, he's gone now. It doesn't matter. The joke is over. Like, you know, (laughs) point out that he was wearing a dog tail or something. Uh, (laughs) I remember saying to myself in my tone, I'm going to have to radically change how, how I phrase things and, you know, react and respond Mm -hmm. so the question to you is the the conversations that we we've had uh already you know in the last half hour i suppose we we've all already kind of become a little bit more familiar with ourselves okay we we kind of know how to deliver um uh, communication between the two of us how how do you find people have to alter their communication styles when they're working within organizations what does that look like Mm -hmm. what are the problems with this Yeah, it's quite complex. So 
First of all, I think it's important to point out that in the global economy, Mm. it is run and led by a lot of Western ideals. So Mm. we see management, leadership, all the business books, leadership books, strategic leadership programs and, and courses that everyone goes on are very much based in the Western world. So, so these companies are running top down with very Western ideas, even when they aren't necessarily located in the Western world. So although we sit in Singapore, we are inundated with a lot of Western thinking and there is a strong desire to to communicate and work in a very Western style, even though that may not be natural for the individuals involved. So one of the big miscommunications problems that we see is this uh, kind of East versus West, very direct versus more circular or cyclical style of communication, um, much more openness, loudness, talking for the sake of talking versus showing respect by staying silent. Yet the Western world of thinking saying, well, if you aren't speaking up, you must not have something to say. So you aren't really contributing and you aren't a strong contributor on the team. We have a lot of these kinds of misunderstandings simply based on the style and the way that people show up in mm-hmm. in a boardroom and misreading those signals. Uh, you know, not speaking up is a huge sign of respect if you're with someone who is a lot older or more senior or a boss or a leader, even if that leader has said a million times, just tell me what you think and say what you want to say and speak up. I'm open to anything. That can be really, really uncomfortable for for people in other cultures. So the way that we look at communication is really driven by this Western ideal. Even when we talk about professional presence, uh, we're looking at leadership markers that are very Western. So, you know, do you speak mm-hmm. up? Do you have a strong voice? Do you take up space? Do you? Uh, all of these kinds of markers are are from a very Western perspective. So, when you get into the global business world, things start to change, yeah. and we aren't always ready for that if we aren't aware of what's going on. So, whenever we're talking about communication, we're just talking about verbal communication at the moment. Okay. So some of the things there, as you mentioned, there were nonverbal communications. One of the key aspects for successful communicators is the ability to listen. And what I'm hearing there is biases from the leaders are kind of coming to the front and expecting people to deliver based on their own set of biases. So what can we do for, for people within leadership positions to become aware of the, the multicultural, the multi, multi-diverse um, range of, of behaviors when it comes to the different communication styles. Yeah, you, you put that very, very well, because it is exactly that. It is showing up mm-hmm. and playing to the biases of the leadership. And of course, many of those are unconscious and the leadership isn't aware that they have them. So it really all starts in self-awareness and yeah. knowing yourself, knowing your biases, knowing your own culture so that you can better understand the differences in other cultures and then having a very curious mindset where you are looking, constantly looking and trying to understand what are the differences here. Even though I truly believe underneath it all, we are very, very similar in our needs, our wants, our our need to belong, our need to be acknowledged. Uh, Yet we go about meeting those needs in very different ways. And, And that's where the leadership needs to be more understanding. And it does come back to exactly what you said around listening. Really listening, not to solve the problem, not to fix the people, not to um, find a solution, but 
simply to listen and understand. And I don't think we've ever been taught that, especially from a Western perspective. We're taught to listen and solve problems, uh, to come up with a solution, be the first one with a solution, be the best, be the fastest. And in doing so, we overlook a lot of people. We don't hear people. And we actually aren't taking advantage of our best talent. They're, they're being overlooked and not seen. And mm. that's a real, a real loss, I feel. There's, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a lot of research. Um, I'm kind of, I'm doing a keynote next week in, in Scotland. And a lot of the research has gone down into the world of complexity theory mm. and understanding the different kind of dynamics that are involved when you look at complex problems and complex systems. So one of the pieces that's become really clear is the ability to listen is one of the potential kind of powers of being able to solve and work within that complexity um, mindset. And the ability to listen and fix, is that inherently Western? Is that something that you believe that we're taught from education or home or society? Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Because what's required to work in complex problems is the ability to remain open and mm-hmm. nurture like a, like a coach or a mentor. Mm-hmm. Where, where is it coming that's a, from? That's a, that's a really good question, uh, which I haven't really thought much about where exactly that need comes from and whether it's specifically Western. Um, it would strike me as being more Western, but that could be my own biases Mm. as well, uh, because we are taught to find the solution. At the same time, if we look at a lot of the education systems out here in Singapore, for example, or China, it is also very solution focused. It is Mm. perhaps even more so because they're trained really to listen and then ace the test. Um, So it's all about finding the solution. And there isn't a lot of speaking up in your class. There isn't a lot of discussion. Whereas in the West, we have a lot more of that from a very young age of voicing our opinions and having discussion and debate and, and really tossing ideas around. Whereas here, the educational system would not be raising them in that way. Uh, So that's a really interesting question and something I'd probably need to think about a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the the things, like for listeners of the podcast, they'll know I'm in the midst of creating a design school for children between the ages of six and twelve, called the Makers and Doers School. And again, in research mode, um, I'm learning that children that are in the educational process at the moment are going to be faced with problems that are, you know, absolutely more complex than we had as children. Um, working in complex systems, dealing with global um, global warming and climate change they need to build a resilience um and they need to be able to handle that level of complexity and being able to work together and um problem solve but not problem solve to solve the problem instantly like we were talking about there when you look to the future and i know you have two kids yourself um what are the kind of skills that you're fostering at home and you'd like to see others foster in their children to become better communicators? Curiosity is number one. Uh, I want to stop on that one. Curiosity, because curiosity, I I hate when I jump in in the middle of someone say that. What do you mean by curiosity? Because people will say, yeah, okay, we can can use this as 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 a sort of a general response. Tell me exactly what you mean by that. I would define it as being open minded. 
So it's being open to different ideas and learning about different things. So that is how I would personally define curiosity, Um, actually asking questions about the world around you. Um, I was actually quite pleased. That was one of the best things that happened going back to Denmark was that we were there for just four and a half years when my kids were between, they were three and five when we moved there and we stayed for five years and then we came back to Singapore. And so they got some very early year education there. And so the youngest, the youngest was in one of the forest preschools, which I think really instilled in her this idea of curiosity. Every day they pile onto a bus, they go out to a forest and they open the doors and the kids run in every direction and climb up trees, fall off trees, swing, get dirty. I don't even know what they were doing. It was massive culture shock when we moved back. The first day I took my daughter home because we were almost in tears. It was freezing for us from Singapore, seven degrees. And uh, the kids were everywhere and we thought they were crazy. (laughs) And we thought, let's try again tomorrow. Um, But she got used to it very quickly and she loved it. And I think it gave her a certain level of confidence, um, self-confidence and independence. And also that it sparked that curiosity to go out and explore and to learn and try new things and give it a shot. Uh, I think that's at the base of, of really everything that we do. So having, having that open mind, um, especially in learning, I think is really important. It it sounds like the school you're, you're creating would be very much along those lines. Uh, yeah. So that I think is a big one. Is that, um, in Denmark, I know like when you look at Finland, uh, mm-hmm. the kindergarten the kindergarten yeah. is like the the garden is actually is, mm-hmm. is where it comes from um is that what you were talking about there like the whole kind of the ability to go out and you know forage and explore and climb and and really play um and i, I love that whole kind of mind is that what you were talking about there is that was that kindergarten yeah in Denmark, it's called Skobernheu. so if you translate that it's a forest children's garden (laughs) so it that is what it is it's our version of preschool so it's what you would do before you go into a formal kindergarten class before first grade Uh, so so that's what it was so the three-year-old got to experience that my older one did not and I think actually Mm -hmm. I wish I had held her back and put her into that for one year just to have the experience because I think the younger one got some real skills there that the older one missed out on yeah, fair enough. So you wrote a book, you've written lots of books when I'm on your website, um, called Unmuted. Okay, so you were in Singapore when you wrote this, correct? Yes, yeah. You wrote it when that you was written here in Singapore um, during the beginning of the pandemic. I was writing that when we all went on to Zoom calls and the only thing you heard at the beginning of every single call was you're on mute. Uh, that sort of inspired the title because I realized that Long before all of our video calls, lots of people were on mute in their companies and their families, even in their communities. And it's all about how do we start listening and hearing more of these global voices? Who are we overlooking? Who isn't speaking up? Why are they not speaking up? Are they trying to? And we just are shutting them down every time. So it's about really bringing all the voices to the table, especially in business, so that we can have the greatest innovations and the most advancement and really reach our potential. Because I think Mm. right now we're squandering it. This can't possibly be the best human existence has to offer. I mean, our our world is a mess. There's Mm. got to be better ideas out there. And either those people aren't sharing them or we just aren't listening to them. Either way, we need to figure it out. So what does it look like um, 
it sounds like the goal of the book is to provide platforms for people to be able to communicate their ideas. What would it look like if an entire organization bought your book and all of a sudden uh, they read it over the weekend and Monday morning everyone starts to speak? Oh, I wish that they would read it over the weekend. We are working with companies where we take them through an unmuted journey where they are all reading the book along together and we supplement that with training and conversations and and those kinds of things. So we are seeing how that is happening now. And really what it's about is being a much more inclusive organization. So it's focused on a framework, which is a Venn diagram. We all love a good Venn. And conscious, (laughs) conscious communication is our first little circle. Confident is the second and connected is the third. And we need all three of those in equal measure to be unmuted. So if you think about someone who's confident and connected, but they aren't conscious, that overlap, those voices are too loud. And we all know that person. And if we don't know that person, we need to look at ourselves because it's likely us, Uh, you know, the person who just isn't very conscious of the energy in the room or the cultural differences. And they just talk the whole time and talk over everybody because, and, and maybe they don't mean to, they think that they're the leader, they need to do the talking or nobody's speaking up. So they're, they're going to fill the silence, right? Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. So, so we look at, you know, who are the voices that are too loud, which ones are too soft that are lacking confidence and which ones are on mute. Those are the people who usually feel that they don't belong or aren't connected or don't feel psychologically safe in the organization. So the book is really taking a much more holistic view on communication than simply how to give a good presentation and how to show up on your zoom call. Uh, and that was really the goal of the book. I notice um, on your website that there's you've lots of different types of training. So even down to the granular of email writing, all the way down through to online presentations and stuff. My question there about what would it look like if everyone starts to speak up? Um, there's other skills there that I'm kind of trying to understand a little bit more around timing and respect. How do organizations manage this? Like, how, how do they... If, if you hire everyone who looks like me, the same sort of personality and skill set in the background, I'm going to clash. Okay, I'm going to be clashing with with variances of myself. I'm like, let me speak, let me speak. I want to talk. You know, like I'm I'm verbal, okay, and, and I'm expressive. Yeah. But how do you manage that? How, how do you manage it when you're uh, within an organization where there's lots of communication, there's lots of noise? Yeah, it's constant. It's constant, yeah. and most of it is multilingual, multicultural. The very, very first step, and it's the first chapter of the book, is who are you? So again, it's what we mentioned earlier. It's going back to that self-awareness piece. So we do a lot of uh, different assessments and things to identify what are our communication styles. You are already well aware. You're talkative. You're expressive. Uh, There are some people who don't realize that they're as dominant as they really are, that they are as talkative, that they need to express themselves verbally and could be dominating meetings, for example. They aren't quite aware of that. So it all starts with that self-awareness and then the cultural elements of how the different cultures function and the different communication styles of the different cultures so that they can better understand each other and why they may be speaking up more or less or not at all. Uh, We also do an unmuted assessment to figure out, you know, where in the diagram they sit or feel most comfortable. And then it's about really um, having a lot of conversations around breaking that down in the specific teams 
and groups so that they can start finding better ways to bridge the gaps and really start listening to each other. So we find that meetings have to slow down tremendously. We have to leave more space for silence. I mean, I speak two foreign languages, so I understand that it sometimes it just takes that split second more to get the confidence to raise my hand and speak up. I'm a very different person in Danish than I am in English, for example. I, I'll, I'll never be the first to throw my hand up or speak in the front of the room. Whereas in English, you couldn't stop me if you tried. So I'm very much a loud voice in English. But in Danish, I become very soft. I turn down my volume or I'll just stay on mute because I don't feel comfortable in the space or because someone has made fun of my accent every time I open my mouth or has to keep pointing out that I'm a foreigner or whatever it might be. Uh, so it's really raising awareness about all of those issues. And then when we get into the space, finding ways and creating new agreements around how we are communicating with each other, both spoken and written, um, you know, managing time zones, scheduling meetings at appropriate times. It's amazing how many American meetings are scheduled that are at 11 o'clock at night in Singapore, and no one has even thought about it. And then they say, no one in the Asia office turns on their cameras or speaks up. Well, they're in their pajamas trying to stay awake on the call. Uh, so there are some really, really simple simple no-brainer, you think, doesn't everyone know this? <laughs> and yet it's never been discussed or brought up. Uh, so it's bringing a lot of those kinds of issues and concerns to light. So you mentioned there about doing an assessment and you potentially like probably sitting in on some Zoom calls and sitting in in meetings and stuff. When you look at where AI is going at the moment, AI, I should get a jingle for every time someone mentions AI. Yeah, really. Is there... Is there potential there for someone like Zoom or even a Google to to be able to do a dynamic analysis of who's being dominant, who's being negative? Mm -hmm. You know, you, your kind of yeah. your communication style and how it's mm -hmm. uh, you've been graded at the end of your meeting. Who was so anonymous grading? There's a whole potential there. If we we already have it, Jerry. We already we? have it. I already integrate it into my programs. Yes. So we already wow. have AI tools that we can bring into a Zoom call or a Teams call or a Google Meet, you name it. And based on who is speaking, the AI analysis is grading in the background. We can see afterwards how many minutes each person spoke. We can see their speaking pace. We can see how many fillers they used and what percentage of their communication was ums and uhs. Uh, we we can see a lot of very, very interesting things. And that in itself is incredibly eye-opening. Then the generative AI, of course, can go in and say, you could have rephrased this more concisely and it will rewrite the entire transcript of the meeting. <laughs> Or it can create the meeting notes uh, that can then be sent out to the participants. So that is wow. already here. That is already here. Um, and it's happening. Would you mind giving a shout out to the the AI tools that you're using? The tool that I use and I've integrated and I've been consulting with the, the founders of this company since close to the beginning is called Yoodly.ai, Y-O-O-D-L-I dot A-I. -O -O okay. uh, and they also have um, a massive contract with Toastmasters that they've rolled out to all the Toastmasters speakers. I integrated into all of my one-on-one -on -one presentation skills, articulation coaching, and then we mm. use it to analyze meetings and as well. And there's also a private function, so you can bring it in so that it will only listen to you. So you, you don't have to worry so much about privacy concerns because it really isn't right to bring that in and not mm. let the other people in the room know about it. So yeah. there is a privacy version that will only record you 
so that it does not um, overstep. Yeah, I think the ethics is really important in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, who knows what's happening in the AI space? It moves at such a rapid space, rapid pace mm-hmm. that um, things change, you know, on the error probably. Um, so with going back to Unmuted, okay, yeah. you when did you launch the book? About a year ago, was it? Yeah, about a year ago. It came out in the UK in March and the US in May last year. So people can get hold of the book. Um, it's I know it's available everywhere on the internet. I, I had a Google on it this morning oh, when yeah. I was having my Weedabix. Um, <laughs> so what does it look like? Uh, what problems did you see that might have been missed in the creation of this book based on the kind of the development in the AI space. So where, where are the bits if you could go back a year ago and you might have added to the book? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> you're good at this. You, you've done this a few times. Before uh, you. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be even more pertinent with the next book I'm writing on accent bias, but where I see... AI and generative AI making a huge difference now is in how people are able to express themselves, especially in writing, Um, because this could break down a lot of the barriers around the self-confidence issues that Mm. that speakers, international speakers of English might have. Um, if, If they're able to take an email they've written and throw it into AI and say, correct this for grammar mistakes. I mean, we already have this with things like Grammarly, but even just to get better written context or to say, I want to write an email on this and how, how would I phrase this in the most concise way? And, and it's written for them, error-free, or, or so they think, uh, okay. then it, it could be a game changer in that sense. Um, I think it's a scary game changer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think another way, though, would be more the translation and the instantaneous interpretation. I think that could make much of my research and what I talk and train on almost a moot point. Because what if we all could start just speaking our own languages all the time, that there was absolutely no need to learn a foreign language because there's instant translation in everything. We already have that. Um, Microsoft has integrated that. You know, you can be on a call and turn on the instant translation and you can watch the subtitles come up in your language. We already have a lot of this tech and it's being integrated in different ways. And Mm. that interests me a lot. I wonder where that's going to go. Um, When you think about it, what would that look like? Say if... um the the language was able to be dynamically translated back into the native language of the other person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so say, obviously, I speak English, and I was speaking to somebody in Cantonese, um, and they were able to get a, a sort of a transcript or an audio version of what I was saying back to them. What are the potential um, areas of conflict that could happen just, just out of, we both had the same intent, we both wanted to get a positive outcome of it, what are the risks there um, with the, yeah. the two, two differences of the language, how the language yeah, is? Yeah, I think, yeah, the biggest risks would come down to cultural style. You know, mm. what, what we read between the lines, um, and we would be missing that quite a bit in translation. 
So that I think would be the largest risk. At the same yeah. time, it could inc- it could really level the playing field if suddenly the English speaker didn't have the power and control of the language and of the global economy. I don't yeah. think that English speakers realize how much privilege we have simply because we were born into English. We enter a room, we have the confidence of the language, we don't need to translate anything in our head, we can respond immediately with exactly the words we're thinking and feeling. Now, if someone speaking Cantonese could do the same while they're speaking Cantonese, well, now that English skill, you know, Mm. isn't as important as we all think it is. And it gives a new voice to everyone else, the great majority of people in the world. Um, and that that's what I find most interesting. But I think the risk there would definitely be what is lost in translation. We, we know Google Translate is not fantastic. It still is not fantastic. Please do not use that as your end all be all of communication across yeah. languages. And um, it really isn't great. And it's because there's a lot of culture wrapped up in language. If, if you were to yeah, and if you were to word for word translate an idiom like not the sharpest tool in the shed and translate that, what meaning does that have to someone from China? You know, I know. <laughs> and there's so many like that. I, I worked uh, you know, with many German people over the last number of years. And uh, in Ireland, they're like, oh, man, how was that working with German people? That's what they say to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> All my German friends are hilarious. Okay, right, and like there's this stereotype, this bias that everyone mm-hmm. like. And when I speak to the German people, they're always saying, "Oh, there's this really interesting German phrase, but it doesn't translate into English." It, we, we, you, you kind of have to understand it. When they break it down for me, yeah, they're they're not great jokes. I'll be honest with you. Like when they <laughs> when they translate into English, but in German, they're, apparently they're very very funny. Yeah. So those nuances, it sounds like there's there's a lot of work to be done because those nuances obviously change and they're adaptive quite mm-hmm. quite quickly in terms of social yeah. situations is that right yeah and i'm usually telling native english speakers especially to remove all of these idioms from their speech i mean americans are the worst you know uh yeah. the the whole nine yards and touch base and foul ball and in the end zone we have all these american you know football and baseball terms and phrases that we use and we don't even realize that they are from those sports you know touch base has become a an international little phrase and yet if you were to translate it what the heck does it mean you know touch what what are you going to touch why are you touching me what do do you mean so unless you specifically (laughs) learned that phrase touch base doesn't make a lot of sense uh and when we stop and go oh yeah how else would we say that i will call you next week i will write you an email. I will contact you. I mean, what do we really mean when we say touch base? Um, So, so I'm constantly telling native speakers to knock it off, to use an idiom, knock it off. And, you know, how, how would you translate that? Knock it, knock what off of what, what does that mean? Right. We use these constantly and we have to learn how to reduce them and remove them in global contexts. And then on the other side, the international speakers will come to me saying, teach me all the idioms in the world. They go to their English teachers. I want to learn idioms. That's what every upper intermediate English learner wants to know, the idioms. And, and I say, stop teaching them. Um, and when I'm forced to teach them, I will say, I'm only teaching them so you can understand the people around you, and I don't want you to ever use them because if you don't understand them, other people don't either. So why why do we continue this? You know, 
that's a big problem. It's probably a social way of pigeonholing of who who gets it and who doesn't get it. Yes. And it, uh-huh. it is probably a way of siphoning and um, removing and kind of strengthening the group. Um, or, when, or it's a power play because power play. you show, right? Because, yeah. yeah, you separate the group between the people in the loop, in the loop, again, in our little circle of understanding, and those who are not. And so it's also a power play of, oh, well, you know, because the person who doesn't understand very, very rarely in a business context, are they going to raise their hand and say, I'm sorry, um, what was that that you said? I didn't understand that. They'll just nod and smile and pretend they knew because they don't want to look dumb in front of the boss. And that's what's really happening in these meetings. And then everyone goes their separate ways and thinks that they have an understanding and they don't. Where, Where the people who have that strong command of the language and the privilege that we have we're able to use that as a, as a power play to really ensure yeah. that we maintain power in the situation, that we're the ones that are seen as eloquent and knowledgeable and know our stuff uh, versus the people who are not contributing uh, or, you know, never understand or are always quiet. So, so there's a lot of this going on. There's a lot of bias, a lot of privilege, and we aren't really talking about it from a linguistic perspective. It's a part of diversity inclusion that's completely missing. It's not yeah. even on the table. Uh, and we're starting to hear a lot about accent, but it's even deeper than that, just at language, at the basics of language. It's very, very true. Um, Heather, we're coming towards the end of the episode here. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you i'm on your linkedin here at the moment so i'll throw a link to your linkedin on uh, into the notes um but what's your favorite website and what's the the best way for people to to get in touch with you well my author website and where i post things about the talks that i give is heatherhanson.com and you can also learn a lot about unmuted and get the book there and if you're interested in the corporate training that we run and the larger communication skills training, that's globalspeechacademy.com. But feel free to drop me a line on LinkedIn. I love communicating with everyone there. So uh, happy to talk to people there. Look, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know it's your evening in Singapore. Um, I really appreciated it and uh, wish you the very best of luck with the, the next book that comes out. Make sure you let us know when that's out and we'll have you back on the podcast for sure. Thanks so much, Jerry. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there thanks again for listening